Amen and good morning, church family. I have successfully this week blown out muscles in my lower back and come down with another sinus infection. And uh, so the rules for this morning are this. If I all of a sudden lock up and can't walk, or if my voice just goes out and I can't make it, Daniel's going to come and lead some music and you're going to sing and I'm going to go home and take some medicine. Uh, that's how it's going to work. So uh, I have some Kleenex up here with me. It might not be the most eloquent you've ever uh, spent with me, but that's all right. I'm grateful to be here, and thank you for those who've been praying, especially since last night uh, as this started to come on. Uh, all of us long for home. Now, if I can play with the illustration a little bit, uh, most of us long to have a home, a house, a place of our own, a place where we feel secure, where we can grow, where we can plant ourselves. And if you have not been involved in buying a house any time in the last few years, it's quite the journey. Usually starts with something like this. Now, you hop on a website like Zillow or Realtor.com and you find a listing. And in that listing, you'll see pictures, and inevitably, we all know pictures, the listing's going to make it sound as good as it possibly can. The pictures are going to be done in such a way that, that makes it look as appealing as, as possible. And, and based on what you see in the listing, and it's going to dictate how quickly you go out and look at it. And in a lot of the housing market of the last several years, with homes flying here, there, and everywhere, there's an additional rush to get there to look at it to go on down the line. Well, as we're walking through uh, the end of Revelation and we're looking at eternity and looking at the home that God has prepared for each one of us, the home that ultimately our hearts, our souls, our spirit are longing for eternally. If last week is the introduction was like looking at the listing, today is like going out to see it. Uh, if last week we were introduced to New Jerusalem and we saw a general idea of what it would be like, today we're going to be taken for a walkthrough that is mind-blowing. So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, and we're going to pick up in verse 9, says this, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a gate and high walls with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on the gates, and which are the, the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the one who spoke with me, that angel. He had a golden measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width, and he measured the city with his rod. 1,500 miles or 12,000 uh, stadia are its length <clears throat> and its width, and its height are equal. And he measured the wall, 144 cubits according to human measurements, which are 
also angelic measurements. Now, pot, stop with me here for a second. If, if we followed along thus far, what John just describes seeing, he says, <clears throat> the angel that in previous chapters would whisk him away and show him the judgment of the city of the world, Babylon, now whisks him away and takes him up to a, a high mountain which at minimum, John's vantage point being on a high mountain is needed because as we read, this city is ginormous. You can't observe the glory of the city from down below. You've got to be up high. Now, digging in deeper, there is all sorts of, of, of prophecy and statements that, that God's city would rest on God's mountain. Even now, the, the temple of the Jews once set on Mount Zion. There is ideas all throughout ancient cultures. Mountains were powerful places. They represented the uh, abode of, of, of deities. Specifically in Scripture, we recognize mountains play a massive uh, role. Moses meets God at the burning bush. Where? On a mountain. Moses meets God on Mount Sinai for the beginning of the Old Covenant. Ezekiel has a vision of the restored temple on a very high mountain. So here's John on this mountain, and he sees the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Not a city thought up and created by man, but a city coming down from heaven, a city that is completely and totally the work of God, a city that Jesus looked at His disciples the night before the crucifixion and said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And now the place that he has prepared coming down, John sees it, and it makes this statement about the city. Do you notice this? Having the glory of God. The city radiates, the city possesses the glory of God as glory radiates out the glory of God, which reveals His presence with His people. The glory of God, which once covered when it's set on the temple and, and prevented any priest from entering in it, the glory of God, <clears throat> which at one point Isaiah sees. And Isaiah in his sinfulness, what does he say? Woe is me, I am, I am undone, ruin me. The glory of God, which to unrighteousness is an absolute terror, but the glory of God, which to the righteous is a beauty and a brilliance beyond description. And the city doesn't just interact with it. It says the city radiates the jasper stone. It John's attempt to describe it as crystal clear jasper, which, which could be some kind of a reference to a diamond-like stone. The true jasper has got a green color to it. We've seen this reference before. John used the same language back in Revelation 4, to describe the glory of God. The point is that this city, it's no mere city. This is not a city that you, you go up and you see and you go, wow, the, what wonder the, the, the Da Vinci and Michelangelo and how they design. No, this city, when you see it, it's breathtaking with the awe and the glory of God. It's beautiful. It says it has <clears throat> great and high walls. Now, you and I need to understand in, in ancient cities, cities in, in, in John's day and time, a city had a wall. We're not used to that. Our cities have freeways and signs that say, now entering, now leaving. 
Cities in John's days had walls, and, and the size and thickness of the wall, the height of that outer wall, it said something about the city's prosperity. It said something about the city's security. A city with a thin and low wall was not a, safe, a, a city that would be safe from attackers, but a city with a great, high, thick wall. It's a city of safety. Now here, what does this mean for the new Jerusalem? Understand the walls are not great and high because there are threats surrounding. We've already seen the threats have been dealt with. All sin, all death, all those who oppose God and His rule, whether human or demon, they are all in their final resting place, the lake of fire. No, simple point is when we speak of the new Jerusalem having great and high walls, it just goes to drive home the, the fact that though you and I now in Christ live in a world filled with danger and insecurity, our eternal dwelling place with Him, you will never know fear, insecurity, and danger. It's perfectly secure and, and mighty and, and strong. It radiates the glory of God. In this, in this wall, there's 12 gates. 12 gates. If you look with me in verse 21, it says, And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. There's 12 gates carved out of a single pearl. The 12 gates, it says, written on them are the names of the 12 tribes. The 12 gates indicate that in the New Jerusalem, in eternity, all of God's promises in the Old Testament are completely fulfilled. Not only that, but these gates sit on top foundation stones. We're told the foundation stones are on them are written the names of the 12 apostles, meaning that the foundation stones for, for the security and the foundation stones for New Jerusalem is the fulfillment of every one of the New Testament promises. There is no promise of God, no covenant He has made that is not brought into complete and total uh, uh, fulfillment in eternity. He describes, he describes the foundation stones. Look with me in, in verse 18. The material of the wall was like jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. By the way, notice, if, if you go to a lot of, um, in fact, uh, I, I, was, I was able to go years ago on a trip, first went to Israel for 10 days, and then we went to Rome for three. And if you go to Rome, uh, the, some of the most, in, in some of the primary basilicas that are in Rome, uh, there, there is, I've never seen so much gold and precious stone before. And it's, it's kind of both alarming. You have a lot of different reactions to it, I, I think, as a American believer seeing it all, but the point is when you go over there and you see some of this stuff that's ornate and you see these unbelievable gold, realize that that gold is simply a, a statue overlaid with gold. What you see here, it doesn't say that the city is overlaid with gold. It says it is gold. And it's not just gold. It is pure, perfect gold. It's precious and valuable. It'll say not just the city, but the streets, pure gold, which would have stood out to John's readers in a day and age where your average city had streets made of dirt filled with muck and mire, with the excrement of animals. Here in the New Jerusalem, there's 
a city made of gold with streets of gold. And the foundation stones of the city, it says, were adorned with every kind of precious stone, meaning that the foundation stones didn't just have some precious stone mixed in. They were giant precious stones. The first, like jasper, possibly either a green striped or, or diamond. We're not quite sure it could go either way. The second, like sapphire, that beautiful dark to light blue stone. The third, chalcedony, a bluish, white and bluish gray precious stone. The fourth, emerald, that beautiful green. The fifth, sardonyx, a mixture of sardius stone and onyx. It's would be a beautiful layered dark deep crimson red and white stone. The sixth sardius, a cherry or blood red gem. The seventh chrysolite, a beautiful olive green precious stone. The eighth barrel, a yellow green stone. The ninth topaz, sparkling yellowish gold gem. The tenth, chrysophras, an apple green stone. The eleventh, jacinth, a yellow to red stone of beautiful brilliance. And last, amethyst, a translucent blue violet stone. Interestingly enough, of the twelve stones mentioned, we know for sure eight of them were found in the twelve stones on the high priest's uh, garments. There is considerable debate that due to the change in language and, and words, if we, were to, if we were to find one common language that the other four would match up and in many ways the, the reference, uh, these stones represent the twelve stones of the high priest, which if that's the case, it's a statement to say that no longer is there a human high priest, but now all the saints enter into New Jerusalem to walk in the service and ministry of priests. Now, at minimum, here's what it means. I wish I could give you a visual. Uh, there is, if you've ever been to uh, the Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., there is a, a portion of it, the gym room. It's where the Hope Diamond is. When you walk into that gym room, you see some of the largest, most brilliant, beautiful, pure, precious stones you've ever seen. They're gorgeous. But even the largest of them is only yay big. These are foundation stones. Here's the picture, church family. The beauty of New Jerusalem is such that John is attempting to use the most beautiful and valuable stones he knows to try to convey to you and me what he is seeing, a beauty which is beyond description. Not only is it beautiful beyond description, but, but he mentions the measurements. The city laid out as a square, 12,000 stadia, which would be about 1,500 miles. A city 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles tall. At, at minimum, we look at the measurements and go, well, wow, we can maybe, that's huge. By the way, if you need help visualizing how, how long is 1,500 miles? It's roughly getting in a car from our parking lot and driving to Buffalo, New York. By the way, I've done that on a youth mission trip from Dallas. It's a long drive. <laughs> 
simple point of the size is that it's big enough to contain the saints of all ages. It's large in grandeur. In John's day, the greatest city was Rome. Now, I forgot to look and see how large Rome was compared to this, but it would be a fraction, a tiny fraction. Now, most of us, though, we think, oh, the, the details, of the, 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 the walls, it says, are 144 cubits, which seems small for a city so big, but likely because the 144 cubits are not trying to state the actual size of the walls, but they're stating the perfection. There's 144,000 of God's chosen coming out of the tribulation. There's walls of 144 cubits. We might get caught up in the measurements and miss what is even bigger, which is the shape. The New Jerusalem is a perfect cube. Where else? What other place in Scripture was a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies. What is the New Jerusalem? It is the Holy of Holies. It radiates the glory of God because as we'll, we've already seen last week and we'll see again, God dwells in the city. No longer is the holy of holies a place behind a veil where only the high priest who you have to tie a rope around his waist in case he's not quite ready to go in there once a year. No longer is the holy of holies that place which signifies God's presence with his people. Now the holy of holies is the dwelling place of God and his people for all eternity. Oh, what glory. Not only that, but look, as he lays out what the, the city, the majesty of the city's appearance, now he describes what, what goes with the city. He says, I saw in it no temple, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. <coughs> no longer, no longer is there a temple, no longer is there a place of worship that provides a visual for God's presence. It's no longer needed because worship will be perfect and God will be visibly present with His people. Wow. The city has no need of sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the land. There, there's no need for created light put into a ball of gas and reflected off the surface of the moon. There's no, no need for those lights to govern the day and the night because instead it is perfectly light from the glory of God. It says the nations who currently rage, the nations will walk by the light of God's glory and the kings of earth will bring their glories into it. That into this city far from the day and age you and I live in today where the nations made up of people of every tongue and tribe rage and, and quarrel, agree on nothing, certainly do not worship the one true God. There comes a day where the nations, people of every tongue and tribe saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ where their kings will enter into the holy city to bring all their glory and honor to the one to whom is worthy. They will walk not in the light of their own hubris, but they will walk in the light of God's glory. It says, in the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. No more night, no more time of darkness where threats are heightened. Cities would shut their gates at night because of the danger. 
There's no need to shut the gates, not only because there's no danger, but there's no even opportunity for it. Night is no more. Instead, the gates are open wide to the people of eternity to come in and be with the presence of God. It says they're open wide, nothing unclean, that is nothing that is, unho- that is unholy or unrighteous. No one who practices abominations, that is no one who is actively living out unholiness and unrighteousness. And no liars. There will be none who claim and say, I am a believer, when in fact, when push comes to shove and the heat turns on, they are found to not have ever been a follower of Christ, but just a liar. None shall ever come into it. The only who will come into it are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Written is a perfect tense verb, meaning that whenever the name was written in the Lamb's book of life, it was written once and it stays there permanently, never to be removed. Moment of salvation, the name is written. Only those whose names are written come in and out of the city. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, will describe the way the city is a perfect garden. We've seen it's a perfect city. It's a perfect temple. They'll describe a perfect garden. We'll look at those more next week. Chapter 22, verse 6 says, The angel looked at John and said, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservant the things which must soon take place. Church family, do we understand today the description that is laid out here? The new Jerusalem is glorious beyond imagination. Part of my job as a pastor when preaching the Word is, is to think through, how can I help visualize this for you? How, how, can, how can we, what, what does this mean? How does this, I'll be honest, it's impossible for me to help visualize any of this for you beyond what John's given us because it is beyond what our imagination right now can even remotely get close to fathoming. That's the point of all the visuals. It means if, if this is the walkthrough when you and I get to our eternal home, it won't be like a listing that looks real great in the pictures, but when you show up, you see all the ways they covered the cracks and all the things you're gonna have to repair. There is nothing about this home that will disappoint. There's no need for my repair because I didn't do anything to make it. No, in fact, this new Jerusalem, not only is it glorious beyond repair, but it is a gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Did you know of the 29 times Jesus is called the Lamb in the book of Revelation, seven occur in our passage today and next week. Seven. It's the greatest cluster in the entire book which draws our attention to the fact that it is only due to Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf that enables any one of us to have our name be written in the book of life and secure an inheritance in this new Jerusalem. It is a gift. Listen, we'll go back to the house imagery for a second. When you try to buy a house today, you see that listing online. You go and show up and hope that it's going to be as good as imagined, and then you got to try to figure out how much to put down because who's going to outbid you? Understand this, church family. No one will outbid any one of us for New Jerusalem. But also understand this. No one will outbid us robbing us of New Jerusalem because you and I never had enough good deeds to get there. Instead, the only one who could possibly purchase our place for us paid a price eternally greater than what you and I will ever be able to do. 
It is a gift of God's grace. Not only this, not only is New Jerusalem glorious beyond imagination, not only is it, does, it, does it remind us the gift of, of God's grace in, the, in Jesus Christ. By the way, in that gift, it reminds us that salvation, salvation has multiple parts to it. It's being saved from my sin, being reconciled to God. It's growing in sanctification in Christ-likeness now. And, and there is an inheritance that is coming. Oh, wow. Not only all of that, church family, but did you catch? There's no temple in it. There's no need for light because God will be the light. The nations come into it. We saw last week God will make His tabernacle, His dwelling place among men. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. We'll see next week that God's dwelling place and we will see His face. Understand, church family, New Jerusalem reveals God's good desire for humanity. He wants to know and love you. He wants to dwell with His people. Let me maybe put it to you like this. <laughs> I want to be careful how I say this. Understand, this, the, the, the new Jerusalem, which is glorious beyond imagination, it's not radiating with our glory. It's radiating with His glory. There's a throne in the middle of it, and it's not another one of us who sits on that throne. It's God Himself. It's Jesus Christ. The city's a perfect temple for the worship of God, not us. It is all about God. It is not at all about any one of us. And here's what's mind-blowing, is it is all about God, whom all of us by birth have fallen short of, were born by nature into rebellion, who didn't love Him and ask Him to, to do work on our behalf, yet in His great love and mercy He sent Jesus, His one and only Son. Here's what's mind-blowing. It's all about Him, and He is so good, He actually desires you to be with Him. Now, that's mind-blowing because typically I, I, I hesitate to say something like that because I don't want to make it sound like it's about us. It's not about us. It's all about Him. But the one who it's all about is so good that He actually wants you and me and every other human in eternity, and He's paid the price in Jesus Christ so that whosoever would come and believe might be with what does that do on days when you think, God doesn't want to hear from me? Oh, my goodness, I've just messed up so greatly. God, eternity reminds us God has good plans for eternity to dwell with those who've been saved by grace through faith for eternity. And His end plan for humanity is not something awful. It's glory beyond anything this world could ever offer. The angel tells John these things must soon take place. Here, here's why he says that, because as all of this comes true, here's, here's what it's as if the angel tells John, you need to be aware. You're writing this down so everybody can be aware. You need to know what God is actively working in history towards. By virtue, you also need to understand what he's actively preparing those of you in Christ for. This is being written to a group of believers who are actively uh, being persecuted. It's written so they can weather the storm of the world's trials and temptations. It's written to challenge us to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the experienced word of our testimony. We're supposed to find strength and conviction from passages like this 
to stand firm. The gates made of pearl, it might instantly make you think of the parable Jesus told that someone finds a field and in that field there is a pearl of value beyond any number. And that person goes and sells everything they have to buy the field. The idea is he says the kingdom of God is like this. The idea is that the kingdom of God is so valuable, so, so, so glorious, so worth it that it behooves anyone to give it all up for what only God can give. So here's the question. How much does the reality of what we've seen here today bear upon our lives? Two questions, two questions. One, we may have missed the first one. The first question the passage calls us to ask is, what city, to what city do you belong? Go back to verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues. The language is identical to the language of Revelation 17, where the same angel told John, John, come with me, and I'm going to show you the, the, the woman of the world, the city of the world, Babylon. The city that today looks prosperous and reigns, the city whom, whom those who are lost are drunk with the cup of her immorality, so it says. The city that today the world promotes in every way, shape, form, or fashion. The economy rides in this city. Entertainment thrives in this city. This is the city of the world that today seems desirous, seductive, alluring, and seems to run the roost. Yet when the angel took John to see that city, John observed in a flash of lightning the eternal destruction of that city. We see the judgment of the citizens of that city, those who have practiced abominations and lie versus those citizens of heaven, holy, righteous, and true. So here's the question, church family, to what city do you belong? It was clear last week, it was brought up again today. Are you, are you standing before God, defined by your works, identified, described, defined by your own works of righteousness, which Scripture said are unrighteous before God? Are you lost and without a Savior? Or have you come to Jesus in faith? trusting Him to save you in the goodness of His grace, trusting Him to save you because what you cannot do, the life we cannot live, the work we are unable to do, He lived the life, He did the work, He paid the price, He took our place, He's risen, and He offers salvation where you and I, when you come to faith in Christ, no longer do you stand before God in your own, on your own. Not only are you defined by your work, you are now defined by Christ's. What city do you belong and understand, Jesus is clear. There's going to be people who do church stuff, who know Bible, who dabble in some ministry, that on the day of judgment, they'll say, Lord, look at all we did for you. And he'll say, I don't know you. Depart. Because their faith was in their own goodness, perceived goodness and works, their faith had never been placed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're online, if you're in the room today and that's you, understand and hear Jesus' offer is wide open today. It is free. It'll cost you nothing because you can't do anything to earn it. It's costly. It'll change you in this world. 
But it is precious because it is the only offer which guarantees you New Jerusalem. To what city do you belong? Not just to what city do you belong, but if you belong to the New Jerusalem, if your citizenship is in heaven, for which city are you longing? Does my life, New Jerusalem is a city of God's glory, in my life today, am I longing for His glory? See, there's a day coming, brothers and sisters, we're going to live in eternity surrounded by His glory. We're going to quite literally walk in the light of His glory. But does my life today reflect a desire to honor His glory, to proclaim His glory through my daily actions and thoughts? Does my life radiate with the expression of His character? Let me put it the most simple way. Do people see Jesus through me? Because that's what it means to live a life that radiates with His glory. Is that what I'm longing for? Am I longing? Is there a clear longing in my heart to live a life that demonstrates Jesus? Which, by the way, is only going to come out of a personal pursuit of Jesus that is enamored with Him. Or does my life filled with the longing for my glory, for my greatness, for my wants? Do I long for His glory? Do we long for His presence We will live in perfect fellowship with God. He will dwell with us and we will dwell with Him. Next week we'll see one of the greatest verses in Scripture. We will see His face. Do we long for His presence? This is one of the greatest revelations of eternity. We're going to live in perfect communion with God. But if I look in my life right now, is there a desire to pursue Him and to meet Him and to live in His presence? Is there a desire in my life? Am I, am I pursuing knowing Him, loving Him? Am I rejoicing in His character? Do I experience Christ now? It's interesting. There was a survey I was given this week, and it looked at different people who claimed or formerly claimed to be a Christian, and I basically ask the same question, how would you define your personal story of faith and, you know, select of these options, the things that most impact your story? So I was naturally one group, you know, one, one group are people who've said they're no longer Christian. And so I started to look, I wonder, I wonder how many answers are about suffering, you know, suffering a great loss, suffering and how much that impact. Here's what's interesting. In all four groups, the rate of suffering was the same. Actually, the one group that reported the highest amount of suffering that impacted their relationship with Jesus was the smallest group, which was the resilient disciple, the person who's actively loving and following Jesus. No, the biggest difference that I saw was this. It's four groups, those who would no longer claim to be Christian, those who would claim the name but, but aren't living anything, those who claim the name and they're doing a little bit, but it doesn't really define their life, and then resilient disciples. Resilient disciples, here was the difference. Resilient disciples were the only group to over 50% say that they live with a great awareness of the presence of God and they have experienced answered prayer, which tells me this, part of the key to discipleship is you and I have to actually live a real experiential relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just formulas, plug and play. Do we know Him? Do we long for that? Not only do we long for His presence, are we longing for His mission to be fulfilled? Did you read about how the gates are opened and the nations come in? 
The nations come in. By the way, how do those nations get there in eternity? Because God first said, go therefore and make disciples right now. Church family, does that mark us as individuals as a church? Is there a heart and passion for the nations to to make disciples of people, to share the gospel, to see those who are saved grow fully into their faith and maturity, and not just to do it of people who might be easy because they're just like me, but to do it of people of every tongue, nation, and tribe? Does it define my life? Because it defines eternity. You see, church family, John writes these things, how much does the certainty of our destiny drive our present action. This is what God is actively working for. Jesus has gone, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. When it comes to the nations, Paul writes in Acts 17 that God is actively at work moving people around the globe that they might come to a point of crying out for salvation. As you and I look at our world today and we see movements of people in greater levels than we've ever seen before, we can debate the politics of this, that, or the other, but are we in tune to what God might be opening, the doors He might be bringing so that we would reach the nations? This is what God is actively working for. Not only that, God is actively preparing us, church family. Do you realize He's preparing us? James chapter 1, 2 through 4, what does it say? Consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect results so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First Peter says this. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. By the way, in this is our inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven, a.k.a. New Jerusalem. In this, in New Jerusalem, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. God is actively preparing you and I right now. If you are in Christ, God is actively working in our lives. He'll use trials. He'll use tribulations. He'll use hardship. He is actively working in our life to grow our faith more pure, to strengthen it, to take it deeper and deeper and deeper into Him, to to enable us to live a faithful life by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within, also with joy when we stand before Him at eternity's crossing. He will reward us, 1 Corinthians 3, with a reward that He's prepared in eternity. Church family, that is what God is actively doing in all of our lives right now. The question is, if eternity is what God is working for, if eternity is what God is preparing us for, how much does it weigh on our life every day? Whenever Bethany and I moved to College Station uh, years back, we... we, um, began the process of becoming first-time home buyers, and we did everything. You just try, oh, look at this one. Let's go see this. So let's go see this. And there's a lot of disappointment when you get there, and it doesn't look as good as the pictures. And then it doesn't matter because someone's already beat you to it. Because in College Station, it's impossible to find starter homes because they're all bought by people who can rent them out and make tons of money renting them to Aggies. I'm serious. It's just the way it works. And so we got real discouraged after two days of looking. We felt we were supposed to go back that night. 
uh, back uh, before moving, and we just didn't feel good, so we stayed, got up the next morning, and a new listing popped up. Called our friend, our real estate agent, right away. He said, I already saw it. I was going to go see it. If you're still in town, meet me over there in 30 minutes when it first, the first chance we get. We scooted. It was awesome. And instantly we're like, yes, this is it. Where do we put some money down? We want to get the ball rolling. See, the value of that home overrode all of our other concerns that morning. The glory and weight and value and goodness, church family, of our home ought to override all of our lives right now. May we be people marked by eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, not a one of us in this room can imagine just how glorious you really are. And it is all about you. And so it is mind-blowing that you, whom are worthy, whom are holy, 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 that you would desire to prepare a place to save sinners by grace through the most costly sacrifice that could ever be made, Jesus, that of yourself. because you want us home with you for eternity. Father, may that never grow stale in our lives, but may it only grow greater and greater and greater to constrain our life. Father, if there's any who don't know you, Lord, my prayer is that they would hear the wondrous message of your gospel and they would yield their life to you. Jesus, you know how you're moving. Holy Spirit, may we respond to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.